Certainly we are thankful and appreciative for the capability to be here this evening, the comprehension and understanding that's ours of our duty toward the great Heavenly Father, and the wonderful privilege that's ours to gather together and offer to Him that which is due unto His name. To notice the words of Psalm 29, verse 2. As I look over the audience, and as Brother Ted already noted, we're regular membership. We're certainly thankful, appreciative for our capability to be here, and also for the visitors who have come our way. It's our trust and hope that all that is done and said will be uplifting, encouraging to each one of us, that we might this week be stronger and better able to serve the great God of heaven. As you may have noted in the bulletin, and as also on the wall to my left, the title of the lesson this evening taken from the core of 1 Samuel 3, is none other than judgment and parental restraint. And the setting, if you had opportunity to read a bit of that text this afternoon, probably the scene is already a little bit familiar to you. But this evening, over the next few moments, might we be able together to take a somewhat interesting journey through the aspects and facets of the life of none other than Eli and to see an interesting, interesting thrust and statement that God made to him. As we consider some of those things, though, a few introductory statements might be in order first, just to remind us of the setting and the scene of this text. The whole notion of the word parental in the title of the lesson does remind us that parents will, in fact, have a role to play in it. And so it is that shouldn't we be reminded that there is indeed a very profound and deep relationship that exists between parents and their children. It is a relationship unlike none other in that the scriptures define it, state it, describe it, and there is certainly a bond there that ought to be a very deep and abiding one of respect. It's only when things are extremely dysfunctional that it's not that way. It's only when things are far from the norm that that respect, that mutual love is not to be seen. But when it's present and there, it's something to be very nobly appreciated for the greatness that it is. And so it remains that as we look even in the lives of those individuals described in the Holy Scriptures, we can begin to see the fervor, the ardent zeal and interest that's there in love for parents toward their children as God would have it to be. That also existed, of course, in the days of the Old Testament. And one of the things that we see both Old and New Testament alike that does, of course, appear is that as a child is born into this world and proceeds on that journey toward adulthood, they are in need of instruction and they're in need of being taught appropriately. And that may on occasion involve an element of restraint, discipline, if you please. And is that discipline or as that restraint is in fact properly adm administered, there is always, at least in the mind of those who are parents, to do the right thing, to strive to discipline and restrain appropriately, and in a way that would be most meaningful for the child. We'll have to ask tonight in light of Eli's family whether or not that was done. And of course, the lesson might well be for us. A few comments I placed about the middle of that screen certainly are not anything strange to many of us today. For there is a great deal of controversy in some circles about the extent to which discipline and restraint should be done. It would seem that most everyone would agree that some restraint is appropriate. There are those, though, who say that nothing in the way of severe restraint ought ever to take place, as, for instance, spanking or paddling, whipping, the particular term that might be used in the modern era. 
But we know the Scriptures will not go that far. For in fact, it still affirms that to spare the rod is to spoil the child, as the wise man Solomon affirmed in Proverbs 13, 24. But might we note tonight that's not the special thrust of our lesson, but to be noted that even restraint of that severity is approved by the God of heaven. And not only that, our question most expressly is, what is exactly God's view in regard to such restraint? Man's opinion matters very little in this area, doesn't it? As in fact, all other areas of biblical description. But what does God say about it? I would ask you to take a somewhat journey with me through 1 Samuel, especially the first couple of chapters, and let's revisit the life of Eli, one of those prophets of ancient Israel, in fact, a judge, if you will. Some of the statements about him would in fact be able to be listed like this. Eli was the 14th judge as the Old Testament would chronicle them. As that particular listing started with none other than that man named Othniel in Judges chapters 1 and 2, we find that this man named Eli is the second to the last one. Only Samuel will succeed him. As he is described, however, we gain a rather interesting appreciation that personally he was a man desirous of serving the Lord. He had a heart, it seems, of great zeal to do what was pleasing to God in a personal fashion and in a personal way. Eli labored at a very interesting time in Old Testament history. He labored at a time when 1 Samuel 3 verse 1 tells us that the word of the Lord was precious in those days. And that language may a bit seem extremely intriguing. Shouldn't God's word always be precious? Shouldn't God's revelation always be special? But the latter part of that verse identifies more particularly what is meant. By stating that the word of the Lord was precious in those days, the inspired writer tells us this. There was no open vision. This was a particular time in Old Testament history when the particular visions that God exhibited directly to those of the human family, it seems, were few and far between. We do know that this was already long after the time of Mount Sinai. God spoke through Moses and gave the law of Moses. And so it is that God communicated with His people through that law. But it still was true that later He would communicate with Elijah, and later He would communicate with Elisha, and even with other prophets in a somewhat direct fashion. But this particular time in Old Testament history, that occurred few and far between. That led to a great appreciation for those times when God did communicate that way. It took on a very great significance indeed. That idea leads us to notice another comment that I had made. In regard to Eli, again, for the most part in his personal life, he is described very nobly, very much a man of interested righteousness before the God of heaven. In the first three chapters of 1 Samuel 3, we do appreciate and see that he did labor at the tabernacle and did so, it seems, in such a way that that was his dwelling place. A very strong attachment, if you will, to, to that tabernacle service. Wasn't it there where the beloved mother of Samuel came and in her disgust and in her disappointment, she in fact promised unto God through prayer that if you'll grant me a son, I will grant him to thee. It was there when Eli recognized her prayer 
and had a role to play in promising her of its fulfillment. When she, in fact, kept her word, when Samuel was born to her and her husband, she brought him to the tabernacle and presented him in service to the God of heaven. And he served beneath the tutelage of Eli. He served, watched, learned, and learned the nature of what it meant to be a judge and a prophet by way of observing Eli. That means that he did have, namely Eli, an example to set, and it seems in many ways he set that notably. There was, though, a glaring missing point in his family, and that's the part I've listed near the bottom of that screen. Something is said about Eli's sons that tarnished greatly the character of his family, tarnished greatly the nature of what he could have become and what his family could have become in service to God. It is that point that should take our attention at least for a moment or two. What is said about his sons? I've listed some features from chapters 2 and 3 particularly. I'd like for us to read just a few of those verses in passing from chapters 2 and 3 of the book of 1 Samuel. We notice that his two sons were named Hophni and Phinehas. Now those names had a degree of significance to them, but let it be noted that far greater than the actual significance of their names was the choices that these sons made in the way that they would come to live their lives. Verse number 12 of 1 Samuel 2 makes the point very abruptly and also very sternly. Speaking of these, it says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. In that brief text, so much is said. Volumes, in essence, have been spoken. These sons of Eli, though he himself was judge, though he himself labored at the tabernacle, these sons of his were described as sons of Belial. That word Belial is a distinctive word used throughout the sacred writings to refer to those that were sons of the devil. Sons of Satan, sons, in fact, of lifestyle far removed from what God would have approved, adorned, and what he would have, in fact, encouraged. Sons of Belial. Later in the Old Testament, in fact, even Satan himself will be associated with this nature of Belial. As we can see, this is no compliment at all to Phineas and Hophni. But notice the latter part of that verse. They knew not the Lord. How tragic, how sad, how utterly abominable to describe anyone by that fashion. And it doesn't the sadness take on a whole new level when we remember their dad was Eli. And yet they knew not the Lord. These sons, though they had grown up around the tabernacle, though they were familiar with the operation and the lifestyle of a prophet and priest, though they were familiar with the character, in fact, of all that must have taken place by way of God's commandment to Israel, they knew not the Lord. That tragedy is only compounded when we come to realize what that meant in their lives. Other verses, in fact, lead us to see that as well. The comments continue on the next screen. You see, Eli, when he had reached a rather old age, allowed his sons to take on the role of being priests. Now, might we remember that these knew not the Lord, and yet they took upon themselves with the blessing of their father 
to act as priest and function in that role between God and the people of Israel. Already it seems that the sage is set for disaster. Here individuals serving as priests who themselves knew not the Lord and thus had little if any appreciation for the sternness of his law, for the beauty and power of Israel, for the objective and mission of his people, and thus for the significance of all that they were to be as priests of God's people. In fact, as we see a recipe for disaster set before us, it did turn out exactly to be disastrous. Looking again in the very same chapter, notice some of the sins wrought by these two sons of Eli. Verses 13 and 14 read like this, And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up was the, for, up the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. Also before they burnt the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. At this point, we will continue reading in a moment, but notice what we've already discussed. Here was the case when the children of Israel came as God had commanded and offered sacrifice as He had given direction. There were very special things that the priest was to take for himself, and it was to be taken in a very special and careful manner. In fact, it proceeded somewhat as follows. The sacrifice was to be made... And then of a selected amount from that, in most instances it was the shoulder and a portion of the other aspect of the sacrificial body, that was to be taken for the priest, for his livelihood and that of his family. Notice here, there was no special choice of that. They dipped it into the pot, took out whatever it was, regardless whether it was the part God said they should have or not. Eli's sons were running roughshod over the very commandment of God. But that's not all. Notice again verses 15 and 16. When they did burn the fat, when the sacrifice was in fact made, it says that the priest's servant came and said, Give flesh to roast for the priest. Once the portion of the sacrifice was taken for the priest, the individual who sacrificed them would celebrate a beautiful meal, if you will, of sacrifice and praise unto God. Once the priest had taken his part at the first, he was to have no part of anything that was thereafter left. Here we notice, though, that Hophni and Phinehas gave second command to you go and take something more from these Israelite people. Their coffers were becoming gray and fat, if you please. But yet the story still isn't finished. Might we notice verse number 17? Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great. Before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. By the actions of Eli's sons, the children of Israel came to dread going to Shiloh and making the sacrifices that God had commanded. Would it not be a terrible thing for the activities of one to hamper, hinder, prohibit, and inhibit the proper offerings of others unto God? 
And yet that's what Eli's sons had come to do. By their selfishness and their sin against God in doing the things that they had done, others dreaded coming to make sacrifice. And in fact, that verb abhor is even stronger than that. They so strongly did not look forward to it, looking in fact against it, that it became a loathsome thing to the children of Israel. That's an awful description. But perhaps there's one more text that will put the icing on the cake, if we may borrow that phrase. In chapter 2, verse 22, we learn yet another sin that was accomplished by Hophni and Phinehas. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. There were female servants who worked in the tabernacle area. Exodus 38 verse 8 makes mention of them. It would appear that Hophni and Phinehas carried on fornicating liaisons with these women who worked in the tabernacle whose intent and desire and objective was to carry out properly and in a zealous way to bring glory to God. And yet these priests fornicated with them and did so, it would seem, on a regular basis. Eli's sons seemed to fall far short of the level of piety that he personally had been able to enjoy in his own life. But that does lead us then to question, what about these sons of Eli? What about anything God may have said about him concerning the lifestyle of his sons and his relationship with them? It shall be that idea that will be the consideration for the remainder of our discussion this evening. If we may note some of those notes or comments near the bottom of that screen, it is interesting that Israel knew well that what Eli's sons did was not proper. Notice again, they abhorred offering sacrifice. They came to realize that his sons fell far short of what ought to have been the case in regard to priests or even anyone interested in pleasing God. But not only that, even Eli knew what his sons were doing. Did you note with me as we appreciated verse number 22 again? It says in a portion of that verse that Eli heard all that his sons did unto Israel. Their father knew, word had come to him, and inasmuch as he knew these things, what reaction did Eli make toward the activities of his sons? Maybe one final comment. In verses 23 and following, Eli did confront them at least. Let's note some of the things he said to them. Verses 23 and following of 1 Samuel chapter 2. It says, And he, that's Eli, said unto them, why do ye such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. We notice that Eli did confront them. He did, in fact, challenge them by saying, You make God's people to transgress. Why do you act in these ways? Isn't it interesting in verse number 24 that as Eli made that direct statement to them, 
it is still an amazing thought that they had little appreciation and respect for the thoroughness of what Eli had said. And verse 25 perhaps states it like this. They hearkened not unto the voice of their father. We have here a very clear description of a couple of individuals serving as priests of God's people and their father, the man that we would call a judge, knew it well. The power was in Eli's hand to go further than what he had done. In fact, God now steps in. Due to the fact that Eli had not gone to the extent that was in his power to do, God now sends to Eli an unnamed prophet, a prophet whose name is not given to us. And beginning in verse 27, this is what that prophet had to say to Eli. Some of the things to be noted in his statement. We will not read the fullness of it. It is found in verses 27 through 36 of 1 Samuel 2. Let me highlight a few of the things this prophet told Eli. First, let's begin in verse 27. And there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon mine altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? This prophet challenges Eli with all the blessings that he had enjoyed by being a judge and a priest amongst the people of Israel. The especial blessing and privilege that God had given unto him. Then in verse 29, Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me, to make yourselves fat with the chiefest of all the offerings of Israel, my people. God now especially challenges Eli. Why do you kick at my sacrifice? You have trivially approached it. You have not honored me the way you should. You have looked more honorably upon the state of affairs of your sons than you have my commandments. And as if that weren't enough, this unnamed prophet goes on to say, in verse 31, Behold, the days come, and I will cut off thine arm. We learn from the verses that follow that was God's prophetic way of stating, Eli, I'm taking the blessing of the judgeship and the prophethood from your family. Due to the activities of your sons, the transgression, the iniquity, the ungodliness, and the evil that's to be found in them, I am removing that blessing from your family. In fact, Notice these words in verse number 32 as it closes. There shall not be an old man in thine house forever. In other words, I'm taking from the, real, the realism of your family length of life in terms of those that could serve as a judge even to the later part of their life. He heightens it even further in verse 34. This shall be a sign unto thee, Eli, that shall come upon thy two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Not only will there be no old men in your family, your two sons will die in one day. I'm taking the glory away from the family that could have been yours. Kicking at my sacrifice, God said, is sufficient in nature to where the punishment shall be that which I am now make making mention of to you. 
Now, God did state a beautiful promise, but it was not for his house. For notice verse 35. And I will raise me up a faithful priest, not an ungodly one, not one that has little consideration for my law. I'll raise a faithful priest that shall do according to all that is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he will walk before mine anointed forever. I wonder about the grief that must have filled Eli's heart when this unnamed prophet told him God's judgment upon him due to the sinfulness of his own sons. Now, by this point, Eli was already an old man. In fact, his death is recorded two chapters from now. But as Eli, in fact, his death is recorded, it would be of note to us his two sons died the same day he did. There we notice no old men left in his family. Isn't it amazing to notice the resounding thrust of the words of this unnamed prophet? It is to be noted, as we've affirmed on that screen, that this unnamed prophet, as strong as his words were, God had something more to say. With those thoughts in mind, let's look at chapter 3 and listen to God now speaking again concerning Eli. On this occasion, a bit of background could also be fruitful for us. Samuel, the young boy that we've mentioned earlier, was laboring in the tabernacle. He was but a youth at this time. In fact, he was so young that he did not yet understand the fullness of God's mission concerning him. This was the scene of affairs that unfolded in 1 Samuel 3. As Samuel, in fact, labored together with Eli, Eli again was old, and on one particular night Eli had already gone to bed, and so too had Samuel. And as they were sleeping in their separate rooms, the word of the Lord came unto Samuel. And in fact, the words like this are what is described. Verse number 4 says, The Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest me. Eli responded, I called not, lie down again. And he went and lay down. That night the Lord called unto Samuel, and Samuel didn't recognize it was the Lord, and he ran and thought Eli had called him. But Eli said, I didn't call you, Samuel. Go back and lay down. At that point, that happened two more times. Finally, Eli was wise enough to appreciate, if this happens again, in verse number 9, this is what you say, Samuel. You say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Eli was beginning to perceive it was God that was calling Samuel. And in fact, it did occur one more time. And sure enough, when it occurred, Samuel said, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. And God unfolded to Samuel some things that in fact were dramatic and powerful indeed. Since the reading isn't terribly lengthy, I would ask you read this section with me. It's in 1 Samuel 3, beginning in verse 11. Let's listen to what God told Samuel that night that concerned Eli. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel, at which both the ears of every one that heareth it shall tingle. In that day I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not." And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. 
the thoroughness and the greatness of that statement. God appeared to Samuel that night and said, Samuel, I'm about to do something to Eli's house at which those that hear it, both their ears are going to tingle. This is what is going to take place. I have told Eli what's going to happen. And so this is nothing strange or new to him, but it's Samuel, you need to know about it. In fact, it might have been thought that the sons of Eli would carry on the torch after him, but God here tells Samuel explicitly, notice again verses 12 and 13, I'm going to perform exactly what I told Eli that I would do. And that unnamed prophet had said, there will be no old men in his family, that his two sons will die in one day, and that I'm going to remove from his family the blessing and privilege of serving as judge and priest. Notice finally in verse 13, I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth. We noted earlier, Eli knew what his sons were doing. But now God makes this final remark. Because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. With that kind of idea in front of us, what lessons might there be that could be fruitful and interesting to consider, not only from the days of Eli, but that might could be very useful to note for even our families today? In terms of the lessons, there will only be two in tonight's continuation of our study. But the first one is this. According to God's own words, which we have just now read, God judged Eli because he, namely Eli, had not restrained his sons. Does God consider parental restraint of the child important? He must. He here saw in Eli a man who had the capability and the jurisdiction and his sons enough respect of him that he could have restrained them in some way, and yet he had not done it. We noted earlier that Eli did reprove them. He cautioned them and urged them to note that what they were doing was not appropriate and was not good and was not right. But isn't it still to be noted, God especially said through Samuel to him, that in fact you have not restrained them. We can conclude God would not have punished Eli if he had done all that he had been able to do in restraint of them. Something apparently was missing. Could Eli have been sterner in his rebuke of them? Could he have in fact removed from them the activity of being a priest? After all, as judge, it would seem that would have rested in responsibility and in his jurisdiction and yet he did not remove it from them. Could he have appointed someone else to be the appropriate priests? It would seem so. Later, Samuel had that power. It would seem Eli had that power as well, but he had not done it. May we appreciate then as parents, children must be instructed. They must be taught. Of that, there is no question. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it to quote verse 6 of Proverbs 22. And did not the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 verse 4, Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There is an obligation that parents possess, an obligation given to them by God, an obligation that they cannot transfer to anyone else, an obligation that as long as that child is theirs, they have the duty to bring that child up in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord, 
to train him or her in the way that they ought to go. When a parent thus shirks that responsibility, and it certainly involves discipline, it certainly involves a correction, a time when restraining is appropriate. We each can remember, I'm sure, that when we were young, we did things that we now know were not right. And we should be ever thankful that Dad and Mom jerked us aside and did to us what we deserved. Correction that was entirely proper and right. The case is that when parents fail to do that, then they in fact paint themselves into a darker picture as that child grows. And furthermore, Eli let it go so far that these children in fact paid no attention at all to what he said. And for that, God judged his house sternly. It is to be noted then that when you and I appreciate the obligation and the responsibility that's ours to train up that child in the way he should go, it involves restraining them in a proper way, restraining them in a way that Eli had not done. And might we notice some other things that I've listed for your consideration. It is here that, of course, it gets far more difficult for parents. Every child is different. The proper restraint for one child is almost certainly not the proper restraint for another one. Some children are tender-hearted and all it takes is a pretty strong word and they've learned their lesson never to accomplish that act again. Others are far more stubborn. Others, it does take a sterner element of rebuke and a sterner means of restraint. It would seem that's the degree to which Eli had not gone. What reproof he had given to them had not been as strong as in the sight of God it ought to have been. May we thus appreciate that it's not fun to have to restrain them, but by the character of God's blessing, it is our duty and it is our obligation. If we in fact love them and strive for them to be the faithful citizens in the kingdom of God that we one day hope they shall be, we must help them learn duty and responsibility from an early age onward so that they will come to appreciate God's law just like they appreciate mother's law or dad's law, that that law means something. And to transgress it brings sore consequences. If Eli had perhaps done things differently, those sons might have been a blessing to him and in fact the dynasty that could have passed through him would have redounded to greatness and glory. However, that was not to be. Can we see then already that God judged Eli's house? And the language that God used was, He restrained them not. But maybe there's a second idea, yet a second lesson to be noted in all of this, and we had already read it earlier. It was that lesson to be found in chapter 2, verse number 29. Let's revisit and read that passage again. Wherefore kick ye at my sacrifice and at mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation, and honorest thy sons above me. Honoring thy sons above me. Though Eli, I'm sure, never would have thought that his actions actually meant this. God said, Eli, by what you have failed to do and what you have allowed to happen, you have chosen to honor your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and their activities above me. To contemplate that is a rather dramatic thing indeed, isn't it? That in essence, that's what Eli had done. 
may I suggest that the same thing takes place in our lives today. If we fail thus to discipline our children or restrain them properly, we are honoring their wishes and their conduct and their character above God's command. We're honoring their place and disposition in life above the challenge and the obligation that God has given us. And as such, we honor them then above God's will. We now would not admit that that's what we're doing, but in reality, due to the commandment given to Eli, that's precisely what we are doing. Doesn't that help us see that then that parental idea of restraining a child is a very important thing? So important that, in fact, there's coming a day that in judgment, that's going to be one of the things that God will bring to mention, isn't it? If we have failed to in fact restrain properly and have not gotten forgiveness for that, then it's the case that's going to be one of those things that God will bring mention of before us, isn't it? Oh, how wonderful it is, though, to think about a child who came to know the love of God and the discipline of Scripture by the hand of a parent that restrained when appropriate, that in love restrained in a way that was not now in any way abuse, but was a strong activity of appreciation for what truly was right. The restraining of that child so that he or she would be a proper citizen not only in the United States of America, but in the kingdom of heaven. The church one day we hope they'll all be members of. To think about things like that is a great challenge for you and I as parents, isn't it? The obligations that's ours to train them up and to restrain them as we ought to. Eli failed in that, and we might note there are other men in the Old Testament that also failed. David did. Might we remember in 1 Kings chapter 1, he had not disciplined Adonijah the way he should have. But in remark to that point, the judgment upon David wasn't as stern as it was upon Eli. This example in Eli's family helps us notice that the obligation is something we must never allow to slip from our mind. And to think that a child left to himself can somehow decide what's right. Did not Solomon say a child left to himself will bring his mother to shame? How many young people, when left to themselves, have finally made the wrong choice? For they didn't have the instruction to tell them that that choice was evil, that it would harm them and hurt them and maybe even kill them. But when that child was at least restrained, perhaps sternly, and came to recognize the sorriness of a decision that could have been made and the far better one that finally succeeded it, oh, what a glory that was, not only to the child, but the, to the parents that they made the choice that was best. The hardness of these decisions maybe helps us to see some concluding thoughts to our lesson tonight. Those concluding thoughts I've stated in words like this. The judgment that God had placed upon Eli's house was certain. He again told Samuel that it's going to make the ears tingle of those that hear it. It's a certainty, and because Eli knew it, and he failed to discipline and restrain them as he should, this is going to happen. It, in fact, did come to pass. We notice again, as I mentioned, in the very next chapter from where we were reading, 1 Samuel 4, these two sons of Eli made a very, very bad decision. They took the ark of God into battle one day, and all the following things happened. The Philistines captured the ark of the covenant. Hophni and Phinehas were slaughtered, and Eli died on the same day. 
It was one of the darkest days in all of Israelite history. And yet, in part, no doubt it came to be because of the fact that Eli had restrained them not. May we in wisdom do better than that. May we look forward to the opportunity of seeing our children in glory grow up to bring glory to God. But that won't happen if we don't restrain them properly and encourage them rightly. And in fact, set before them the example that we should. And so it is tonight. What about my Christian life and yours? Are we in fact setting before them an example such that we might well say, Son or daughter, I hope that you will strive to imitate me to the extent that I imitate Christ. Paul made that statement in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Can you and I make the same? We should be able to. If you and I can't make that tonight, it would seem that change needs to be made. That you and I would set a course and chart our compass so that we could live more beautifully and directly in response to God's commandments. Tonight, if that would be the need of your life, Brother Harold has chosen a hymn of invitation. If we could be of assistance to you by helping you become a Christian, just as Laura Beth did this afternoon. The baptismal waters are ready. We would be happy to affirm your belief and repentance as we take your confession and baptize you for the remission of your sins. If you've done that but have strayed away from the pathway of righteousness and your children know it, you need to set before them an humble example of returning to the Savior's side. And if we could be of assistance in prayer to do that, it would be our greatest joy tonight, even now, while together we stand and while we sing.